you pray with me as we begin our new study of the book of Ephesians? Father, we have already sung truths that you planned before time. We have rejoiced in what your Son has accomplished in his death and in his resurrection. And we have confidence that one day in these truths in which we trust by faith, that because of the person that is the presence of your Holy Spirit, we will one day experience fellowship with you face to face. So would you help us this morning? Would you lead us to see more profoundly than we have ever seen before the reality of what you have done for us in Christ. For it's in his beloved name that we pray. Amen. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones said of the book of Ephesians, it is very difficult to speak of Ephesians in a controlled manner. He said the peculiar feature and characteristic of the epistle to the Ephesians is that here the apostle seems to be, as he puts it himself, in the heavenly places. And he is looking down at the great panorama of salvation and redemption. Jones continues, Luther says of the epistle to the Romans that it is the most important document in the New Testament, the gospel in its purest expression. Accepting that as true, I would venture to add, if the epistle to the Romans is the purest expression of the gospel, the epistle to the Ephesians is the sublimest and the most majestic expression of it. He says, there are statements and passages in this epistle which really baffle description. The great apostle piles phrase upon phrase adjective upon adjective, and still he cannot express himself adequately. There are passages in the first chapter and others in the third chapter, especially towards its end where the apostle is carried out above and beyond himself and loses and abandons himself in a great outburst of worship and praise and thanksgiving. I repeat, therefore, that there is nothing more sublime in the whole range of Scripture than this epistle to the Ephesians. Whether you love soaring theological doctrines or very serious, very practical, very down-to-earth application, this book, that is the book of Ephesians, has something for everyone. Ephesians stands, perhaps without equal, as the most concentrated combination of of grandeur and of grittiness that has ever been penned in human history. It is with anticipation, therefore, and for me, it is with awe that we begin our study of this incomparable book. 
Our passage this morning is chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 of Ephesians. So brothers and sisters, hear the word of Almighty God. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So Lord, would you lead us now by your Spirit as we dive in. I ask in Jesus' name, amen. Now, one of the reasons why I asked Patrick to read chapter 1, verses 3 through 14 this morning for our call to worship is to prevent the temptation that I might have to continue to read on and on and on as we proceed through Ephesians. Now, introductions are somewhat unique, and so... This morning's message is designed to be a little bit like when you, when you first pull those steaks off of the grill and walk back into the house. Even while everything's getting situated in our home, it, all of a sudden the hey dads come one after the another. Hey dad, what do you got there? Hey dad, you want just a little bit of, can I just have a little bit of taste of that? Right? So this, this morning's message as an introduction to Ephesians is designed to be a foretaste of what is to come in this glorious book. So let's get situated this morning and then we'll begin to start handing out meat week after week after week. Now our outline is simple for this morning. Uh, I want to look at some background information on the letter of Ephesus itself and then talk a little bit about uh, the city of Ephesus. Then I want to spend some time talking about Paul as the author of Ephesians, and in particular, the words that are given to us here in verses 1 and 2. And I also want to take some time to read some from the book of Acts. In fact, some larger sections than we typically do, because as much as I could seek to summarize what is happening in Ephesus at the time, it is powerful to hear in Luke's words the description of what was actually happening. And then finally, I want to just take some time to briefly give an overall sense of the message of Ephesians so that we know where we're heading over the next several weeks. Let's begin then with some background information on the letter itself. The letter to the Ephesians is one of the four so-called prison letters, along with Colossians and Philippians, and Philemon. They were written by the Apostle Paul when he was imprisoned, probably in Rome, in about A.D. 60 through 62. And in the book of Ephesians, he references his imprisonment in chapter 3 and verse 1, and then again later in chapter 6 and verse 20, and there are multiple other references to his imprisonment in the Scriptures. Now, the historical connection between those four prison letters is is absolutely fascinating. When you take those four letters and look at them together and then overlay it over the grid of Acts, an intriguing scenario develops. Uh, Tychicus, who is mentioned in the last few verses of Ephesians, whom Paul refers to as a beloved brother and a faithful minister in the Lord, 
Wouldn't you love to have someone say that about you? This beloved brother in the Lord was likely carrying the physical letter that we know as Ephesians, as long with another letter that Paul references that was written to the Laodiceans in uh, Colossians 4 and verse 16, he was carrying these two letters while he accompanied a runaway slave who was making his way back to the region of Ephesus. That slave's name was Onesimus. And he was essentially heading back probably to the Colossian church where he could be reunited with his master, a man named Philemon. It's fascinating to consider how the details of these individual lives have contributed to our understanding of the grace of God in the gospel itself. When was the last time you just stood back in amazement around the details of the way that you personally came to faith in Christ? The people, the places, the circumstances of your life that God used to make your heart come alive to the truth of the gospel and to see the glory of Jesus Christ. Let's spend some time this week as families, either over lunch or in growth group, just recounting a few of the details of the way that the living God drew us into relationship with himself. Now, Ephesus was a very large city by ancient standards. It was a port city located on the northeastern shore of the Mediterranean Sea in a Roman province known as Asia. Uh, It's what we would consider to be modern-day Turkey. Its population was as many as 300,000 people. And its main theater in the town held 50,000. Just incredible. Ephesus became part of the Roman Empire about two centuries before Paul visited there on his second missionary journey in A.D. 52. Now, according to ancient accounts and archaeology, Ephesus was a very modern city for its day. The trade and the ideas that came through the port led to a thriving economy and a culture leaning towards materialism and sensuality and idolatrous diversions from everyday life. Even today, if you walked the streets from the ancient docks into the city, you can find a hand-carved sign on a rock that points sailors to the local brothel. It was a city that doesn't seem so ancient, after all. Now, the whole city seemed to be, to be addicted to learning all of the new philosophies and ideas that came in on the latest ship. In addition to this, they were committed to greater and greater experiences, pagan experiences of asceticism and of eroticism. When you travel abroad to various countries, sometimes the spiritual darkness of those places is absolutely palpable. And so it was with 
Ephesus. The religion for which Ephesus was famous was the cult of Diana, or in Greek, Artemis. Now, the great temple of Diana was so massive in size and its architecture was so magnificent that it was considered the crowning jewel of the ancient seven wonders of the world. A resident of ancient Sidon wrote a description when he first saw the temple. He said, I have set eyes on the wall of lofty Babylon, on which is a road for chariots, and the statue of Zeus, and the hanging gardens, and the Colossus of the Sun, and the huge labor of the high pyramids, and the vast tomb of Mausolus. But when I saw the house of Artemis that mounted to the clouds, those other marvels lost their brilliancy. It would have dwarfed the Parthenon in Athens. Imagine you're in a fledgling little house church that meets across the street from the temple. How intimidating would the culture, the people, and the cult of worship be to you? You're sitting there with just a few other believers, staring at this magnificent monument saying, how is this going to work? How is it possible that the good news that we believe is going to spread to others? It seemed impossible. Now, the detailed events recorded in Acts 19 give us an indication of what was happening in Ephesus from a ministry standpoint. And in particular, it gives us a sense of the commitment, the fervency of those who worshipped Artemis. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to uh, the end of chapter 18 of the book of Acts. And I'll begin reading in verse 24. Now, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the Scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. And it happened that while Apollos was in Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples and he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we haven't even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? They said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, 
telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. So opposition to the gospel was present at the very beginning. Paul taught here for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hand of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognized, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leapt on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Now, after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. Imagine that. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be disposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! So the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together into the theater dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. 
And even some of the Asiarchs who were friends of his sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another. For the assembly was in confusion and most of them did not know why they had come together. But some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward. And Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew... For about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Now, there was an image of Diana, of Artemis, in the temple area, and they believed that it had fallen straight down from heaven. That's what he's referencing here. Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash, for you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another." But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly, for we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. And thus Paul was saved. But did you see Paul's response? That theater held 50,000, up to 50,000. The crowd is in a riotous frenzy. They all gather together and Paul says, great, they're in one place. Let me go preach Jesus to them. Let me go preach the good news of the gospel to them. And his friends have to hold him back because Paul wants to go straight in. Brothers and sisters, may God give us courage. May God give us courage to preach the gospel, to share the gospel with others without fear. Hostility to the gospel is nothing new. Now what is astounding about Paul in the context of what we learn from the first couple of verses in Ephesians is the miracle of what happened to him. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. Now when we hear that, we think, oh yeah, Paul. Great evangelist. Wonderful, sacrificial, passionate Christian man. Uh, That is not at all what the Christians in the first century would have thought when they saw this man. Saul of Tarsus was named after King Saul. King Saul became king precisely because he was so impressive, a head taller than anyone else. But in Acts 13.9, Saul of Tarsus is called Paul, which simply means little one. How like God to have this this Hebrew of Hebrews with a mighty intellect advancing beyond his peers 
to have him humbled and appointed to be his messenger to the Gentiles. It was by the will of God that Paul was an apostle of Jesus Christ. And brothers and sisters, we cannot, we cannot brush over this. This statement reflects an absolute miracle. Because Saul's reputation, Paul's reputation, before he was referred to as Paul, was that he tormented and jailed believers of the way. In Acts 7, verse 58, in reference to Stephen, the first martyr, it says, And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Then this simple indictment. And Saul approved of his execution. When devout men buried Stephen, they made great lamentation over him. But, but Saul was ravaging the church. And entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison, Acts 8, 2, and 3. In other words, Saul was breaking down doors with his entourage and literally going in and taking mothers physically out of their homes, away from their children, and throwing them in prison because they confessed faith in Jesus Christ. He was taking fathers from their homes tormenting them, torturing them, and throwing them in prison, and when possible, overseeing their execution because of their faith in Jesus. And yet, by the will of God, Paul became a fervent and passionate follower of Jesus. This is, this is the miracle of the gospel fire-breathing enemies of the gospel and of God himself in an instant can be transformed. Their hearts can be turned and they become faithful lovers of God and of one another. Do you know that this morning? If you think your, your sin disqualifies you from becoming a Christian, you have met your match in the blood of Jesus Christ. His blood can make you clean in an instant. Imagine how Paul's words and his actions would have been perceived by those huddling in their house churches. In fact, this is how Paul describes it at the beginning of Galatians 1, starting in verse 11. He says, for I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people, so extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me 
in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to see Cephas, that is Peter, and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. And what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. God so radically transformed Paul's heart that he began to pour out his life for the church he so violently persecuted. Here's a glimpse into the relationship between Paul and the Ephesians. It's recorded in Acts 20, beginning in verse 17. Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. Possibly because he knew if he went to Ephesus himself, if he went to them, he wouldn't be able to bear to tear himself away from them. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel and the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all of you. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, 
which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard, in this way we must help the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said this things, these things, he knelt down and prayed with them, and there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again, and they accompanied him to the ship. In this description in Acts, we, we get to see the combination of the, the grandeur of the gospel and the themes that are communicated in Ephesians with, with the, the grittiness of what it looked like for Paul to love these people on a daily basis. Because of the greatness of the reality of what is true in the gospel, Paul was willing to pour out his life for the Ephesians. You know that this morning, that the gospel's grand call is, is also a call to grittiness, to getting your hands dirty and wading into the messiness of other people's lives so that they might get a taste, a taste of the greatness of the gospel proclaimed by Jesus and Paul and by God's grace proclaimed at River Oaks from Sunday to Sunday. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Amazing. To the saints who are in Ephesus, that is, the ones I love, whom I've served for three years, who are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So then what is the nature of the grace and the peace that Paul is offering to these beloved people? In other words, what is the message of Ephesians. Well, despite its relatively short length, a, a lot of people consider Ephesians to be a little bit like uh, omnibus legislation. That is, there's all kinds of stuff in here, but we're not sure how it all fits together, but we know it's going to have a huge impact in our lives, right? But I would submit to you this morning that there is a very important and coherent central theme to the book of Ephesians. Chapter 1 is, is kind of like a, a doctrinal waterfall just 
cascading truth down upon us, washing us over and over and over again. So much so that it's easy to miss the distinction that Paul begins to make between Jewish believers and Gentile converts. Paul begins by by making a distinction between Jews and Gentiles in the church in order to break down the division between Jews and Gentiles within the church. Now, most believers just kind of cruise along in chapter 1, kind of assuming that the us that's in reference here is, well, us, right? Just listen to some of the language. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved and he continues on and on until you get down to verse 13 and then he says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him. Who's he talking about? Why the distinction? He's making a distinction between the Jewish believers and the Gentile converts with the express purpose that the Gentile converts would come to realize that all of these glorious promises are actually true for them as well. The main thrust of chapter 1 hinges, in a sense, on us paying careful attention to the pronouns. And that continues into chapter 2 and then again chapter 3. Because if we just flatten out the message, we'll miss the central thrust of what Paul is attempting to communicate here. It's similar uh, in the beginning of chapter 2 when he talks about you were dead in trespasses and sins. But then he goes on to say, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. So he's making a distinction in order to show them this is true for both of us. Which makes his statement a little bit later in verse 5 when he says, even when we were dead in trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. Think how powerful and pregnant that word together becomes in context. Paul is making a distinction in order to show how the gospel breaks down the division between Jews and Gentiles. At the end of chapter 2, Paul shows that those who were far off, that is the Gentiles, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And so the cross takes center stage. Then in chapter 3, Paul says that the profound mystery that has been revealed is that In Christ, Gentiles become co-heirs with Jews of the promises of God, chapter 3 and verse 6. And we'll talk about the four examples of the use of the word mystery as we press further in over the next several months. Then, in light of these indicatives, all these things that are true about God and about us in chapter 1, chapter 2, and chapter 3, Paul begins in chapters 4 and 5 and 6 to say, Therefore, in light of these truths, walk in unity together. Walk in purity together. 
and walk in victory in Christ over sin and Satan himself. That last part is really key. In Christ. The message of Ephesians is not just a call for for Jews and Gentiles to, to get along. Like we're all different. Can't we come together? Can't we just learn to accept one another? The message is far more profound. It is a call to realize that because you are in union with Christ, you therefore are one with one another and therefore must live in unity with one another. We are not simply called to unity with our neighbor for the sake of of, of functional ease. Rather, we are called to realize that our union with Christ makes us one. Now, when, a, when an orchestra or a particular section of an orchestra is tuning for a concert, take the trumpets, for example, they don't tune themselves by all just playing and then trying to hear each other out and adjust to each other on the fly. There is one note struck, and each individual trumpet tunes himself or herself to that note. And definitionally, they then become tuned to one another. It's an important distinction. Think about Canada and Mexico. So are you with me geographically? Here we are in the middle, right? Imagine Canada and Mexico were at war with one another. But the conflict is ultimately resolved because both nations decide to assimilate into the United States. So if you were going to say, oh, hey, don't worry about it. The the conflict between Canada and Mexico is resolved. They're unified now. You wouldn't really understand what's happening until you understood that the reason they are now unified is because they have become one nation in the United States. Now, Let me attempt to summarize the message of Ephesians for us. And my hope is that much like our initial summary of Ecclesiastes, over the next several months, we'll grow and deepen our understanding of why this is true. This is the message of Ephesians. The Father's eternal plan is centered on unity in Christ and all his blessings come through blood-bought union with Christ. Therefore, based on our grace-dependent union to the head, we as the body can relate to one another by the Spirit in unity, in purity, and in victory over sin and Satan. Now, in the 21st century, we don't think quite as much about the distinction between Jews and Gentiles. But every single day of every single week, of every single month, of every single year, there are some from every tongue and tribe and nation, all with unique life circumstances, all with personal stories about how they came to faith in Christ, all distinct from one another. 
So the principle becomes that unity with Christ leads to unity among each other, no matter where you're from, no matter how you talk, no matter what the details of your life are. Because we have trusted Christ in faith, we are one through the gospel. Therefore, the miraculous truths communicated to the Ephesian church and frankly the challenging call to walk in a manner worthy of our calling as Paul says in chapter 4 and verse 1 can only be understood and can only be lived out by embracing the death and resurrection of Jesus that we have already sung about this morning on our behalf and by trusting in the Holy Spirit who is the one who empowers us to live in unity, who empowers us to live in purity, and who empowers us to live in the victory accomplished by Christ on Calvary over sin and over Satan forever. Therefore, may God reveal much about himself and about ourselves and about one another as we begin this walk through this glorious book together. To God alone be the glory. Would you pray with me? Father, uh, I pray. Father, I'm praying in the name of Jesus. And I'm praying by the power of the Holy Spirit. And I'm asking you, as our Father, to deepen our understanding over these next several months. Deepen our understanding about how glorious you are. And how incredible the reality of the gospel actually is. And I pray as a result, we would be more in awe of you. We would be more in love with you. And we would serve each other and our community, indeed the world, more faithfully in a manner that testifies to the grandeur of what Christ has accomplished for us. To that end, we pray in Jesus' blessed name. Amen.